A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, it's John here. We recorded this episode just before the news that Donald Trump has been indicted for mishandling classified documents landed. He denies those charges, of course. We expected this news, and we do talk a little bit about the legal cases he's involved in. So this episode is hopefully even more relevant than it was when we recorded it. If you'd like more details specifically about the indictment, I was on The Intelligence, our sister podcast, this morning talking about it. So do go and listen to that. He first had a go the year the Soviets blockaded Berlin. Bing Crosby was the biggest star in Hollywood, and Elizabeth II had not yet ascended to the throne. By his last attempt, the World Wide Web had been invented. It was the year of the Rodney King riots in LA, and Nirvana were the world's biggest band. Harold Stassen ran to be the Republican nominee for president nine times between 1948 and 1992. He was no fringe oddball. He'd been elected governor of Minnesota at the age of 31 and was later one of America's signatories to the UN Charter and a member of Dwight Eisenhower's cabinet. In 1948, he almost beat Thomas Dewey to the nomination. But after that first near miss, he didn't trouble the scorers much. Still, he kept on going and eventually the man once nicknamed the boy governor became known as the Grand Old Party's grand old loser. At the age of 85, wizen-faced and sporting a ginger-tinged toupee, he was persuaded to stop. I tried, was one of his favourite remarks. Donald Trump has a way to go to match Harold Stassen's tally. He's running to be the Republican nominee for just the third time. And this week, more candidates have entered the race to try and stop him. With 515 days to go until the 2024 election, I'm John Prado and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can anyone beat Donald Trump to the Republican nomination? Chris Christie and Mike Pence have become the latest to enter the Republican primary. Can either of these former courtiers take down their old boss? Donald Trump commands a huge lead in the early polling, and the man thought most likely to challenge him, Ron DeSantis, has been stumbling. What, if anything, could break the former president's hold over his party?
With me this week to talk about the Republican primary, which was the subject of a recent cover story by Idris in The Economist, are Idris in Washington and Charlotte in New York. Idris, when I said there are 515 days to go, you put your face in your hands, but now you've recovered uh, your composure. How are you doing in DC? What's going on? I just didn't realize we were so close to the countdown clock. It's here already. That's that's just crazy. Um, things are fine in DC. It's a bit smoggy, not as bad as New York, but um, a little bit smoggy. I spent yesterday on Capitol Hill where uh, the Freedom Caucus had paused uh, everything out of a show of discontent with the debt ceiling deal. So a lot of congressmen were twiddling their thumbs, which meant that they had more time to talk to me. So I was very happy about that. Charlotte, how are you doing? I've been thinking about you and all our colleagues in New York, given the awful air quality. I mean, I assume you're not running to work at the moment. No, it's been really smoggy here. Yesterday, early afternoon, the sky was a dark orange and all kinds of things have been canceled. Children aren't playing sports outside. The streets are relatively empty and people have dug out their masks from COVID and are largely wearing them around the streets. So I'm hoping it will clear in the next day or two, but I don't remember New York ever being like this. So it was a pretty surreal 24 hours. Well, there's been a certain amount of primary news this week. Chris Christie, Mike Pence, the governor of North Dakota, Doug Burgum, all announcing their candidacies. But we're going to start with the number two in the field, according to the polls, Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis. Often people running in presidential primaries, if they're not the front runner, are very keen to make themselves available to the press. Not so much Governor DeSantis, but Idris, you have managed to snag an interview with somebody who's fairly close to him. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Earlier this week on The Hill, when people were twiddling their thumbs, I met with Virginia Congressman Bob Good. He's a member of the Freedom Caucus and a Republican who's serving in Congress at the moment. And he's also one of the few who has endorsed Ron DeSantis. A lot of them have come out for Trump. So we spoke at the Conservative Partnership Institute, which is a gathering place for like-minded Republicans near The Hill. And the first thing that we talked about was why he was supporting Ron DeSantis. I think Ron DeSantis has been a model governor, a model executive uh, who has shown tremendous courage. Uh, He's shown uh, a willingness to take on all the tough hot button issues, many of the issues that others are afraid to tackle. He has a strong conservative core. He is a demonstrated uh, strong leader. And uh, I'm excited at the opportunity of having eight years of his leadership in the White House. Is it a policy uh, question for him? There seems to be a lot of agreement among all the candidates who are running now about quite a few things, border, wokeness, these sorts of things. So what what was it particularly about? Well, it's a blend. It's a blend of policy from pursuing and accomplishing a strong conservative agenda in Florida. And it's also uh, the fact that he gets elected four years ago by half a point. Mm-hmm. And what was a purple state 20 years ago with the hanging chads that I remember that you probably do not. And conventional wisdom for some folks would be, okay, you're in a purple state. You win by half a point. Uh, go moderate, go vanilla, go tepid, go lukewarm. Don't rock the boat too much because you want to get reelected. Instead, he was bold and courageous and the tough stances that he took, the policy agendas that he pursued, and Floridians rewarded him with a 20-point victory four years later. And you're somewhat of an outlier within the House Republican Caucus, within the Freedom Caucus, for endorsing 
Ron DeSantis over Donald Trump. What made you decide to do that? Well, I'm certainly not against President Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he was an outstanding president. I would enthusiastically support him, help him, vote for him if he were to be the nominee. However, there is an electability component to it. Uh, there is a uh, eligibility service opportunity of eight years. And there is, I would suggest, a stronger commitment to the conservative agenda. And there's, there's been a few opportunities where there's been some differentiation between the two. You said that there was an electability component to this, and you know some some would say that you know the governor's position on um, you know these sorts of bills with Disney or Ukraine might imperil his standing uh, in a general election. I think the counter that you could make to that would be look at what happened in Florida in twenty twenty two. But what do you you mentioned there was an electability component? What do you what do you mean by that? Well, again, I think that what he did in Florida, the country needs. Just from, I think Amer Americans are hungry for that kind of leadership. Floridians certainly are uh, in, in a state that I think is reflective of the country. It's a, it's a very diverse state. Got a lot of seniors, got a lot of young people. Uh, again, it's been, it's been a purple state, and I think the country's purple. And, and while, well, again, I, I, I think President Trump was an outstanding president, uh, and I'm not endorsing against him. I'm endorsing for Governor DeSantis, and I will do everything I can to avoid any criticism of the president, unless I have to make a comparison contrast for, for that's necessary. But, uh, you know, the, the president does motivate a lot of people to turn out very strongly for him, but he also motivates folks who just, for whatever reason, and most of which I don't understand, honestly, but there's, some, there's a portion of the electorate that just will not vote for him. There's a portion of Republicans that just will not vote for him. And so I, I think Ron DeSantis gives us the best chance to win in 24. And... He also gives us the opportunity to get eight years. We certainly need all eight years to try to turn around this country. At the moment, you know, uh, Governor DeSantis is trailing Trump in the early primary polls. What's your advice for him or, or feeling about how? Well, I, I think that will largely mitigate itself as he's out there, as he's, you know, he's only been declared for two weeks, something like that. Um, and I think the more that he's campaigning, and, and, you know, and let's face it, he's getting all the attacks right now. Yep. All the attacks. Because no one's really running attacks against President Trump. No one's attacking any of the other candidates. So all the other candidates are attacking DeSantis. President Trump is attacking DeSantis. I get multiple social media messages attacking Governor DeSantis from the Trump campaign. Uh, so, the, so President Trump recognizes the challenge that uh, Governor DeSantis is. But it also really doesn't matter what the national polling is. All that really matters is the battleground states. And I think that I, I believe this, the majority of Republicans, while there is an emotional connection, understandably, to the president, I have an emotional connection to the president. And while there's tremendous appreciation for what he did, there's tremendous appreciation for the fact that many of us don't feel like the 2020 election was contested fairly. I'm one of those. And there are many of us who obviously recognize the way that he has been unjustly, illegally, in my view, inappropriately, to say the least, targeted and attacked and felt the full brunt of a two-tier justice system and a weaponized federal government, quite frankly, Department of Injustice, uh, FBI, rogue attorney general in New York, or DA, I should say, in New York. So there's an emotional connection there in addition to what he accomplished. But 
I, there's also a rational component to voters and you get alone in the ballot box, just take another race or another elected office and you're considering a couple of different candidates and one of them right or wrong, I would say wrong, fairly unfairly, I would say unfairly, but has some baggage, has a significant portion of the voting population that just doesn't like them, doesn't want to vote for them, and will be carrying with them, again, unjustly in my view, but, you know, legal battles and things like that. There's a, there's a pragmatic component to that that you would probably yeah. say, okay, well, that's probably not the best person to nominate because we want to win. So, Charlotte, very interesting to hear from Representative Bob Good there. He is from Virginia, so purplish state, but represents the 5th District, which is very safe Republican territory. And and he had three things to say on Ron DeSantis. Electability, he thinks he's better than Trump. Eligibility of service, which actually is not one I'd heard much before, but obviously makes some sense, right? He could do two consecutive terms, Ron DeSantis could, whereas Donald Trump couldn't unless he changes the constitution or ignores it. So that's not impossible. So put an asterisk by that one. And the third one is that he has a more consistent conservative agenda. But he was also super careful to avoid criticizing Donald Trump, right? While making that endorsement. I think you heard in that answer that he gave and the answers that he gave to Idris, an encapsulation of the challenge for DeSantis in that he wants to differentiate himself from Trump. And really, this is the challenge for so many of the candidates, right? Is that they want to differentiate themselves from Trump without denouncing him or without putting too much daylight between them. That's the same for pretty much every candidate except for Chris Christie, who we can talk about later. But it's not a straightforward pitch. It'd be much easier if you could have a really clear statement about differentiation from from Donald Trump, but the party has evolved in a way that you just can't, and it's politically risky to do so. But I think one thing that is worth saying about DeSantis up front is just how much the party's donor base has tried to anoint him as the person who could defeat Trump. He's attracted a lot of money. His governor's race, he raised $217 million, which is just a huge sum. And so it's clear that donors at least initially loved DeSantis, but it's not at all clear that voters liked him. And if you look at polls, Trump is about 30 percentage points above DeSantis, which is a very big lead. I mean, just a very, very big lead. And then there are things that have happened that have made donors themselves more anxious recently, including the comments that DeSantis made on the war in Ukraine being a territorial dispute. Um, DeSantis, as Idris has written, had this unfortunate period where he had a long time before announcing his candidacy. He was waiting for a change in the Florida legislature that will allow him to run for president without giving up his position as governor. And during that time, he was kind of treading water, but sinking. And so it's not been a good stretch for him. Idris, another thing Congressman Good mentioned there was the dynamics of the Republican primary, which at the moment mean that everybody seems to be attacking not the front runner, which is what you might expect, but the number two candidate, Ron DeSantis. Why is that? You're right. The only exception is Chris Christie, who has been attacking the president directly and head on uh, this week. And he's going to be, I think, the only person who's willing to assail him. And the reason is fairly simple. If there isn't really a never Trump route to the Republican nomination among Republican voters, you know, a majority say that they plan to vote for Donald Trump in the primary. And an even higher number say that they liked his presidency and they liked his ideas. So everyone is competing. They know that the only viable option is to 
be an heir to Trump, not a replacement. And that's a very delicate operation to try to pull off. A more an easier operation, the theory that a lot of the candidates have at the moment, is that if they could just plow over Ron DeSantis, they move themselves into second place, they have some amount of momentum, then there are a few question marks, and then they win. Uh, you know, the question marks are, are of interest, of course. But the idea is that the road to Donald Trump, Donald Trump's kind of the final boss in this game. And, and first, you have to beat the mini boss. Uh, if you play video games, you, you'll you uh, recognize that. So that's how they're all um, uh, interpreting it. And, you know, Ron DeSantis is not, if you look back at his uh, gubernatorial debates, he wasn't the most adept debater. He's a bit thin-skinned with the press. You still see that at the moment. And so come August, when the first debate happens, which every candidate is going to see as their breakthrough moment. They're all going to be attacking him. He's going to have to play defense from all sides. And that's even if Trump bothers to show up, which he might not, which would imperil their attempt even more. One final thing on Idris's interview with Bob Good. He suggested that there are policy differences between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. He talked about DeSantis having a conservative agenda that I think in his view is more clearly defined. Do you guys agree? And can you point to what those policy differences are? So, you know, Donald Trump is going to, he's already attacking Ron DeSantis from the left on Medicare and Social Security. He's attacking him for his votes taken in Congress that suggested that he wanted to do some amount of entitlement reform. Donald Trump has correctly surmised that that is a liability politically, and he's attacking him for it. And I think that, you know, Ron DeSantis has a deeply held belief that the ideological shift that's happened over the last few years in the left, uh, what we might call wokeness, is a real problem. I think Donald Trump says that he thinks that, that, you know, I think he's a follower to that movement, whereas Ron DeSantis was a bit of an originator. And he was more willing to dissent from the consensus on COVID when Trump was president. And that's something that I think he's going to make a lot out of. But, you know, on, on policy, they agree on quite a lot. So uh, as with every presidential race, it's going to be a bit of a popularity contest. I think Idris has pointed to a few important areas of difference, but there just isn't that much space between DeSantis and Trump on many big issues. What they would do in office is not that dissimilar. But if either man were elected president, it would set America in a new direction in all kinds of ways. And one that's worth highlighting, I think, is Ukraine, because it's not clear that American support for Ukraine in its defense against Russia's invasion would continue, certainly not on the scale at which Joe Biden and some traditional seasoned Republicans have ensured. So if either man were elected to the presidency, it's worth underscoring the many, many ways in which um, their agenda would differ from that of what we might traditionally think of as a Republican slate of policies. All right, let's pause there. Donald Trump is clearly miles ahead in the Republican primary at the moment, but it's early still, and frontrunners do sometimes lose. We'll go back and look at perhaps the most spectacular collapse of a frontrunner in a party primary in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you'd take out a subscription to The Economist if you don't have one already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. It should have been a softball for someone about to launch their presidential campaign. Why do you want to be president? But Ted Kennedy struggled to answer the question. Well, I'm... 
were I to, to make the, uh, the announcement and uh, to run, the reasons that I would run is because I have a great belief in this country that it is as more natural resources than any nation of the world. He talked for two minutes, over 250 words, without really giving a reason why he wanted America's top job. The greatest capacity for innovation in the world and the greatest political system in the world. It was November 1979, and Kennedy was being interviewed for a CBS special just days before he officially launched his campaign against the incumbent, Jimmy Carter. He felt like he always had to run. Uh, John Ward has written a book, Camelot's End, about the 1980 campaign. He says that Kennedy felt the weight of the family name and ran in part out of duty to his slain elder brothers. And so there was pressure on him to run at some point. And 1980 rolled around, and that was the time he chose to run because the sitting president was very weak. Jimmy Carter had suffered a series of setbacks in his presidency, and his poll numbers were very bad. And so a lot of Democrats wanted Ted Kennedy to run, and Kennedy saw his opportunity. The early polling looked good. An average of primary polls from March to July 1979, equivalent to where we are in the current cycle, put Kennedy at 47%, more than double Carter's 22%. In August 1980, cries of, we want Ted, filled the hall at the Democratic Convention in New York. But Kennedy was not there in victory, but defeat. Well, things worked out a little different from the way I thought. But let me tell you, I still love New York. (laughs) This is an ABC News special. The Iran crisis. America held hostage. It's possible that Kennedy's campaign was doomed nine months earlier, before he'd even announced, when Iranian students seized the U.S. embassy in Tehran. The special report that we planned to bring you tonight was about domestic politics, the battle among the Democrats. But we think the crisis in Iran is more urgent right now than the campaign here at home. Some 60 Americans including our fellow citizen whom you just saw, bound and blindfolded, are now beginning their sixth day of captivity inside the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. John Ward again. It's mostly remembered as the thing that caused or was one of the big causes behind Jimmy Carter losing the presidential election to Ronald Reagan after the primary. But in the winter of 1979 and early 1980, the country rallied around the president because of this crisis. Carter's approval rating shot up from 32% at the beginning of November to 56% two months later. And not only did it rally Democrats to Carter, it also pushed Ted Kennedy out of the picture because uh, most of the country's attention was focused on the hostage crisis, on the quest to get them back, and on President Carter's attempts to do that. In January 1980, Carter won the Iowa caucuses, and victories in a number of early contests followed. The momentum had shifted. Kennedy enjoyed a bit of a comeback, winning some spring primaries, and launched a last-gasp attempt at the convention in August. But he never caught up. It wasn't just the hostage crisis that did for Ted Kennedy. 
Carter played his hand well, running what was described as a rose garden campaign and deploying the powers of patronage effectively. And Kennedy was haunted by past scandals, including Chappaquiddick. In 1969, he drove his car off a bridge late at night, and his passenger, Mary Jo Kopechny, drowned. John Ward says 10 years later, this still mattered. There were other, you know, personal moral issues with Ted Kennedy, a lot having to do with his infidelities around his marriage. But his role in the Chappaquiddick incident was going to be an issue if he ever did get the nomination and had to run against Ronald Reagan. Um, And in fact, it did also play a role in him not winning the nomination. That was certainly a huge factor in many Democrats kind of holding off on breaking to Kennedy towards the end. Right now, it feels unlikely that anyone not named Donald Trump will be the Republican presidential nominee. His current lead is even larger than Kennedy's was at an equivalent point in the race. There is, however, still a lot of time left. So, Idris, the Ted Kennedy story of throwing away a huge lead in a party primary is one example that might encourage Donald Trump's challengers. What others are there that you particularly like from the past? I mean, pick your beginning point of presidential history. Um, I think the closest you could come to drawing an example would be Hillary Clinton in 2008, where she led Barack Obama by quite a lot and ultimately ended up losing. I think that the Kennedy example is the most extraordinary one that we see in the data of early lead dissipating. So, you know, people say not to take much stock in polls, but if you look back at them, the early leaders at this stage of the polls often tend to go on to to win the nomination. And and actually, Kennedy was the example of the person who had the biggest loss in terms of how much he scored now and how much he ended up with in the end. Donald Trump has an even larger lead than Ted Kennedy did over Jimmy Carter. And there are other things that are different about American politics that might suggest that the challenge will be harder than people anticipate. So Kennedy's moral failings were part of the campaign. I don't think morality matters so much to Republican voters at the moment. So I think you can scratch that one off the list. And Kennedy was running as the insurgent against the incumbent, Jimmy Carter, who was obviously able to run for the White House. The advantage is flipped in the case of Donald Trump, who was in the White House and also has spent the last you know eight years really reshaping the Republican Party in his image. Add to that, I think the fact that uh, Trump is running a much more professional campaign than he did before, and uh, I think that it becomes harder to imagine how someone breaks through unless they're a generational talent, which was the case with Barack Obama against Hillary Clinton. I don't know that Ron DeSantis is quite that level of talent. I don't know that. DeSantis is quite that level of talent, I think, is Idris's version of a harsh burn. But I agree with that assessment. There's always been this question with Donald Trump, I think, among his critics of what will stop him. Is it going to be another Republican? Is it going to be a legal challenge, some kind of legal issue where he goes to jail or becomes so mired in a given case that it prevents him from moving forward? Or will it be the general election? Will it just be a Democrat? Which is what happened in 2020, right? It was it was Biden. It wasn't the Emoluments Clause. It wasn't any of these other issues, right, that brought Trump down. The legal stuff, I think, is worth dwelling on for a moment because it is still simmering away. You have in April, he was charged with almost three dozen counts related to payments to cover up sexual affairs with Stormy Daniels, better known as Stephanie Clifford, and others. Uh, That trial will begin 
next March, so really in the thick of primary season. And he could go to prison for up to four years for each of those counts, though he probably wouldn't. Then there is the issue of the Georgia elections, which we've talked about in the past. In 2020, people will recall when Trump called the Secretary of State of Georgia and asked him to find votes that would ensure his victory over Joe Biden in that state. Then you have these investigations in the Justice Department into Trump's efforts to overturn the outcome of the 2020 election and also about his movement of classified documents to Mar-a-Lago, his home in Palm Beach. And so those are going along. But I think it's worth remembering for those who find any number of these issues to be disqualifying, if not legally, then at least just as as a premise for the very basic qualifications of a, a president or someone who would occupy the Oval Office, that traits that to his critics seem disqualifying to his supporters are assets. And Trump has always excelled at being a bully who plays the victim. And I don't see that changing here. 64% of Republicans want Trump to run again. That's a really, really high figure. And that compares with just 53% of Democrats who want Joe Biden to run again. So despite all the problems that Donald Trump has displayed, you still have nearly two-thirds of the party who want him to be part of this race. And that's a really powerful momentum going into the primaries. Well, as I mentioned earlier, there have been a couple of, well, three new entrants to the Republican primary field this week. This is becoming a really big field. We're going to be back in a moment to talk about some of those candidates who are a little bit under the radar at the moment and also discuss how the size of the field will likely affect the dynamics of this primary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. James Bennett writes our weekly Lexington column and is a regular guest with us on Checks and Balance. I wanted to talk to him this week to get a sense of the shape of the Republican primary field and what would have to happen for one of those other candidates to supplant Donald Trump. Trump's seemingly unshakable hold on a large chunk of the Republican Party, I think, is going to be tested in the coming months in a way we've never seen it tested before. There have been a number of times people thought Donald Trump was in so much trouble, he couldn't possibly survive it politically. And and often he's emerged, you know, actually strengthened by, for example, an indictment, you know, in, in New York City. But we haven't really seen Republicans come after Donald Trump, like serious Republicans come after Donald Trump the way they are starting to now. And that combined with what seems like a likely pileup in, of indictments, you know, puts us in kind of new territory. And it's going to be really interesting to see if, uh, you know, Donald Trump's position within the party begins to deteriorate. I think there are already signs that it has. The very fact that so many other candidates have gotten in, including his own vice president challenging him, which is something kind of without precedent, uh, is a sign that, A, they sense weakness, 
And B, they're not afraid of the guy anymore. And that's an interesting development. Uh, Mike Pence, who you mentioned already, launched his campaign this week, as did Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey. They offer contrasting styles or contrasting approaches, don't they? You know, as you say, Pence is trying to say to primary voters, listen, you can have all the things you liked about the Trump administration and just not with Donald Trump. It's the kind of MAGA without the drama pitch, which in a way is quite similar to Ron DeSantis's. And Chris Christie seems much more prepared to take Donald Trump on head on, which is not necessarily a winning strategy. But you know, if you think back to 2016 and the role John Kasich played in that, it's easy to forget that he was the one who was actually still going by the end of the primary, right? The, the one candidate who'd worked out how to oppose Donald Trump somewhat successfully. Chris Christie's entry into the race is really interesting. I mean, he's he's not popular with Republicans. He has a very difficult path ahead of himself, but he's clearly you know, going to emphasize trying to campaign in, in New Hampshire, which where independents can vote in the primary. And which uh, has historically rewarded Republicans like him. He's not competing for the evangelical vote in Iowa the way Mike Pence is. I mean, Mike Pence is really trying to recapture the old idea of what a candidate of the Christian right looks like. How much appetite there is for that anymore is really unclear. There's a lot of competition there. Nikki Haley and Senator Tim Scott are also competing for those voters in Iowa right now and trying to present themselves as a more truly conservative alternative to Donald Trump. Christie is getting going to get a lot of attention for himself, though, a lot of attention from the press for doing what he did in his campaign announcement, which is really go right at Donald Trump. And we've got this really interesting, kind of irresistible to the press um, smackdown coming between the boy from New Jersey and the boy from Queens, you know, this kind of bridge and tunnel competition between these two brawlers. And, you know, they're going to be calling each other's names. And Christie, I think he's going to, in many ways, define himself as the guy who's strong enough to really go right at Donald Trump. And in that the slipstream of that, I wouldn't be surprised to see more and more of the other candidates begin to pile on. We were talking about this the other day, and you made the point, I think, that this is actually a pretty strong field when you look at it. There are a lot of governors and senators, and it's a strange field in the sense that if you look back at past Republican primaries, I mean, pre-2016, often there's a slightly bonkers candidate who does well early on and then disappears. So you think of Herman Cain in 2012. If you go back to 2008, think about Mike Huckabee winning in Iowa. This time, because of Trump, things are sort of inverted. You have the front runner who is the kind of crazy and yet has sort of the aura of an incumbent. And then you've got all these rather experienced senators and governors trying to unseat him. It's strange, right? It is. That's a great way to think about it, John. You know, it's it's obviously it's a function of the partly of the anti-establishment fervor in our politics. And it basically some of the very things that you would think would credential a candidate, having been a senator, having been a governor, having proven themselves as a politician, can be disqualifying for a certain kind of voter, certain kind of Republican voter, also a certain kind of Democratic voter who's just, a, you know, we've seen change election after change election for decades now. And there is a tremendous amount of impatience with the idea that we're going to get some 
version of what's not worked for us in the past. So there's that combined with all the other changes in the media that we know about social media, the kind of celebrity nature of politics. And I, I do think you're right. We just have to be really careful about ruling anybody out at this point. We do have to be careful about ruling people out at this point. But one of my heuristics I've developed for looking at primaries is that the candidate I like most is guaranteed not to win. And in this case, the candidate who impresses me is Tim Scott. And that's therefore the the kiss of death. Is there anybody who you find particularly compelling in the field so far? I have not been out watching Tim Scott in action yet. He also stumbled a bit early on. It's not going to matter. He's got plenty of time. He's raising a lot of money. I'm really curious to hear him on the campaign trail. I was out with Nikki Haley for a few days in Iowa, attended a bunch of her town halls. I thought she was a very good retail politician. That doesn't necessarily translate to the national stage, but she's, I think, somebody to watch. So, Charlotte, three new candidates this week, Chris Christie, Mike Pence, Doug Burgum, governor of North Dakota. With apologies to Doug Burgum, what did you make of Christie and Pence's campaign launches? I thought that Christie's campaign launch was pretty impressive. I would not be surprised if he flames out. His tenure in New Jersey was bumpy. But I thought that he made a credible and convincing and powerful argument for why he would be successful in in a debate format against Trump. I do think that that's something I'd very much like to see. I don't know that he'll make it to a debate stage because he needs to have a certain number of Republican donors to do that. And as Dries has pointed out, Trump may not even be on that stage. So that's a problem. Mike Pence is someone who I watch with great interest and some amusement. I largely want him to stay in the race so that I can hear him refer to his wife as mother. But I thought that his campaign video was telling. He wants to present a an image of someone who has the gravitas to be president and who is also moral. You saw that throughout his entire announcement. There was a real endeavor to show that he is a true American patriot. They had pictures of him and his family and his children, some of whom have served in the military. You have a vision that is very general but nonetheless compelling about how the American dream is being crushed by runaway inflation. And he talks about enemies of freedom and you see Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. I was struck by what followed that, which is he had just outlined economic threats and and real existential threats with China and Russia. And then he said, worse still, so worse than those threats, timeless American values are under assault as never before. And then you saw images of drag queen story hour and uh, trans swimmers. And he had a line about how God is not done with America yet. So you see him really making a play for this moral voter. And that's not just in his campaign ad, but the way that he's going to campaign in Iowa, where I think he really wants to play to the conservative evangelical voters on the right who are, who are very powerful within that state's Republican Party. But I don't really know what will break through. I mean, if you look at the polling over time, if you look at a graph, you see Trump on a steady upward trajectory. You see DeSantis quite a ways below, faltering. And then there are these lines at the bottom of the graph, like a sad little puddle of people. And that's where Mike Pence lives, along with some others. And I just don't know that any one of those will rise out of the dregs, but maybe they will. What do you think, Adrice? 
yeah you know there's a lot of time for people to come out and and it does happen i still think that trump's in the commanding position so i don't know that it'll ever rise to a serious threat to him i do think that you know pence what surprised me about his launch video was that there was no mention at all of, of donald trump but later on when he was giving a speech in iowa he did talk about the elephant in the room and still obliquely you know not as directly as chris christie but but mike pence said that anyone who would seek to subvert the constitution is unfit for office and should not be returned there that's a fairly direct rebuke of the president i found his position after january 6 to be kind of difficult to ascertain he wrote this book a memoir in which he you know, obviously was unhappy about how January 6th happened, but he still couldn't bring himself to directly criticize his former boss. I do think your point about morality is right. That is the lane that he's running in. I do think that the the moral bar presented on January 6th was a low one, but it's one that not many Republicans cleared and Mike Pence did. And so I give him a lot of credit for that. I just don't know that there's appetite for that in the Republican Party, because I think the Trump devotees all hate him. And I don't think that there are enough of the never Trump folks to actually see him through the nomination. I found Idris's briefing on the state of the Republican race so convincing that I have a hard time imagining how Donald Trump could not win this. But Charlotte, you're more imaginative than I am. If Trump were to lose this thing, where are the windows or where are the possible opportunities for other candidates? Well, I'm not particularly imaginative, but I did read an interesting analysis from Elaine K. Mark from the Brookings Institution that I thought was helpful in this. So she breaks the race into three periods. The first she calls the invisible primary. So no votes are cast, but candidates are out there trying to raise money, build up their staff, secure endorsements. And then stage two is before Super Tuesday in those early voting states. And this is where you've seen some former frontrunners falter or people who were favorites among parts of the Republican establishment. So Jeb Bush certainly did. It's also when Obama really began to gain momentum after that first win in Iowa. So I think that's a really key period. If someone else could get a bit of traction during those early states and then maintain that momentum through the big rush that will happen later in the spring, largely I share Idris's view that it seems extremely likely that this will remain Donald Trump's party and he'll be at the top of the ticket. But there is some light that you might see emerge in those early voting states. So I look forward to watching them. Yeah, I'm, I'm not trying to extinguish all hope. Uh, I'm just trying to be uh, realistic. But I think you're right. I think if Trump wins Iowa, it's kind of over. Okay, it's quiz time. We talked earlier about Harold Stassen, who ran unsuccessfully for the Republican nomination for president nine times. I'm going to give you a list of some other losing candidates for the nomination. And I want you to tell me the year I'm referring to. A clue is that all these years are also years that Harold Stassen ran, although that doesn't narrow it down all that much. Question one, Bob Dole, Pat Robertson, Pierre Dupont and Jack Kemp. That would have been in uh, 1996. Um, Yeah, I think that's when Bob Dole ran for president. Bob Dole ran a couple of times. It's actually 1988 Mm. where Jack Kemp had his moment. Of course, the vice president, Ronald Reagan's vice president, George Bush Sr., playing George Bush then, won. Question two. What year was this? Robert Taft, 
Earl Warren and Douglas MacArthur. Mm. I didn't know that Earl Warren had run for president. That's very interesting. He was governor of California before he was on the court, right? So I would guess 1952. 1952 is the right oh, answer. Idris goes home with the points. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thank you so much. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. Nico Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can now explore our whole archive if you want to do that at economist.com slash checkspod. And you can get in touch with us via email. Our address is podcasts at economist.com. And we really like reading your emails. So please keep those coming. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. 